0: you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 24. We will be there a bit. So it's in the middle of your Bibles. We're going to be all over. So I guess it's as good a place as any to start this morning. It'll be a little bit uh, different than normal in that it'll be a little more uh, building an understanding of the whole scope of Scripture that I think will help us in our understanding in Matthew 24. And if I had different settings if we had a Sunday evening service, that probably would be where I'd prefer to do this type of uh, message. Um, if we kind of had just some more with the building, places we could do it. But I, I feel like it's necessary. It's kind of one of those things that becomes a bit prerequisite to understanding the all of it discourse, at least to enough, as I have studied over the last couple of weeks, to feel we need to back up even a little further. I know I introduced a little bit last week. Um, and after answering a lot of questions and different things, I feel like let's back up even one step further and let's talk the whole scope of, of scriptures. Let's talk the people of God and some of those things and um, just kind of the two major systems. And I think that'll help understand then when you come to Matthew 24 um, how we're going to look at it as we continue. Next week, we'll look at actually just the resurrection. With Easter, but then the following week we'll jump back into the all that discourse. So that's kind of the plan there. But let's pray and go to the Lord. Lord, we thank you that we do have confidence in your word, uh, confidence even if we don't understand everything. There is so much that we do, and so much that is clear, Lord. And the major things that we hold dear to us, Lord, in the importance of of salvation and your uh, power and sovereign grace in the lives of not only nations, but in people. And Lord, help us keep those things in focus as we look at the broad scope, as we want to understand your plan, not just for us, not even just for the church, but your your plan for the entire cosmos. And so we just pray that you would uh, just encourage us this morning through these truths as we look to your word. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. I'm sure many of you have been to some kind of orchestra concert. And I'm always fascinated at the beginning of the orchestra concert, or if you went to a large enough church that kind of had an orchestra, when they tune. Because it doesn't sound very good right? You kind of, you got that in your picture in your mind and they're tuning and they kind of go and the conductor goes and it us have the, the string instruments tune and the brass and the woodwinds and there's really no tuning with the percussion, but you know, they're there and they're tuning together and it's all one note and they're trying to make sure everyone sounds right and it kind of crescendos. And if you think about that note when played in comparison then to when the concert begins and they all start playing different parts, it's pretty amazing, um, and, and almost when you listen to that kind of music or you're in that concert, everything just starts to work seamlessly together. And the more you know about music, I think the more interesting it is because these are all different parts, right? Played in harmony. They fit perfectly together and then they make a beautiful sound that's unique that they could have never made on their own. Um, kind of the opposite. I love having a guitar, but when you just have a guitar, right? Right. What's the other instrument other than voices? But when you get a lot of things coming together and you understand these all can work seamlessly together, but you have to have the big picture. And this morning, we're going to attempt to kind of look at the big picture of Scripture look at all those kind of different pieces of the, the beginning to the end in a way, hopefully, that is helpful, uh, in a way that ends normal, uh, Lord willing, and and hopefully help you with an understanding. So we're gonna look at the forest scripture, give you some background because I feel, this may shock you, but I, I, I'm, I'm sensitive and, and I, I care that you understand. And I'm feeling guilty because I'm, I'm seeing blank faces and I'm talking to people and I'm clarifying and I'm going, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna try this again and hopefully bring some clarity. And this is one way I think you can back all the way. I almost did. Just to let you know this, I almost did a sermon on Genesis one through three and creation. I was like all the way back to the beginning of time, but we we we'll, we'll stop short of that. Um, we'll kind of throw it all in together. I know I had mentioned we'll talking about the rapture, which we will talk about. I believe we get there to the end of this message. So you think about the church, you think about your Old Testament, you think about your New Testament, you think of the whole of Scripture as a disclaimer. We as a church are a New Testament church. And so I, with the Apostle Paul, say yes and amen, uh, that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. And I absolutely affirm that the gospel is of first importance. So as we're talking about things and timing and nations and all of this, what I want you to do is hold these two things together. I want you to walk and chew gum, okay? Okay. So don't hear me saying that all this, so we, even if we were in Daniel in Sunday school, so you're getting hit from different ways with this, right, lately. And it's like, all you're gonna talk about is the end. No, no, we're just we're, 22, Matthew 23, 24, all the discourse, it's there and we're hitting it. Uh, but I want to hold those together without someone, uh, as we look at the big picture, don't lose sight that I think the individual picture is important. And if I'm dealing with somebody and I'm evangelizing somebody, that discussion over the end times or the rapture or the millennium is not first on my to-do list, right? Sin, salvation, Jesus saving us is, is. So understand that. But I also wanna say as believers who affirm those truths, we wanna understand scripture as a whole and address the big picture as well. So we wanna talk about creation and the kingdom and the coming day of the Lord, you can't help but go read through the Old Testament. And you're going, wow, over and over and over again. And you see these kind of patterns, there's these promises and they're national promises. And then you have them either kind of with sometimes like say the Mosaic covenant in Deuteronomy 30, where there's, there's blessings and there's curses. And then it says in Deuteronomy 30 that they're going to fail. You're reading through your Bible for the first time going, What? it's predicted in Deuteronomy 30. At the very beginning, Israel's not going to be able to do it. They're going to fail. And after their failure, God is going to restore them. And so how do you put this together then as a New Testament church? It's those things um, that we want to talk about. And it's also alongside, again, it's important as well what God is doing in our individual lives. But this morning, we're going to look at the big picture. So with that said, There are two kind of major systems. We're gonna briefly talk about them and this is not meant to be exhaustive. So feel free to keep asking me questions and you might go not care. And well, for those of you who care, it's for you this morning. Um, But you think of these systems, that's kind of the title of continuity and discontinuity. So things where you have to answer questions. Is there any distinction between the nation of Israel and the church today? If you see no distinction that the church is Israel or Israel is the church, either way you look at it, that's in that kind of category of a system of continuity, right? There's continuity from the old into the new. And I would say it this way, extreme continuity, because everyone's going to see some level of continuity, right? Uh, God is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? He's continuity. No so we all believe in some level, but it's based on that kind of spectrum where you fall, how much you see is different. Is the church distinct, how distinct is the new covenant from, for example, the Mosaic covenant and those things? Do you see uh, the, the kind of the sign of the covenant in circumcision? Do you see that as one-to-one with the sign of baptism, right? Because that's how, if you get into these, uh, a covenantal Presbyterian church, that's why they believe in baptizing babies. And so those are questions that come to the forefront Now, I'm often asked on this score, of the two big systems, which basically are covenantalism and dispensationalism, uh, which one are you pastor, right? That's going to become the question. Because you look at our doctrinal statement, what we teach, you're not going to find that term, but you're going to find beliefs that line up with dispensationalism. The reason I may seem at times to reluctantly answer that question is, what do you mean, right? Are you a Calvinist? Well, okay, what do you mean by Calvinism, Right? What do you mean by dispensationalism? And so, because within that framework, particularly, I think some of them are misnomers and mischaracterizations, but oftentimes people start to associate certain beliefs with the system, especially if someone's gonna write from one perspective and normally they're gonna defend their perspective and accuse the other perspective of being wrong, right? Now I'm not doing that this morning. I don't think by um, buying into a system of covenantalism that you are a heretic or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not gonna play that card, but here, I do want to address some of the things that are often associated with dispensationalists that I'm going, well, that's not where we are as a church. So for example, some people accuse dispensationalists of dismissing the Old Testament in whole. So you've got a famous uh, preacher. Uh, We're not very much like uh, Andy Stanley or his church in Atlanta, but he came kind of out of the Dallas theological seminary background. And so he kind of identifies as a dispensationalist. And he famously said, you know, we have to unhitch from the Old Testament. Well, no, I don't think so, right? That's, that's not me. Don't sign me up for that. Some people will talk the existence of two distinct new covenants. So Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, those are for the church, or those are for Israel, excuse me, and there's a distinct one for the church. Um, I, I see more continuity there, that there is one new covenant that uh, you have two distinct people and group in, Uh, I think one people you could say with distinct roles is the best way that I would put it. Some people in that dispensationalist movement have talked about uh, the cross being a plan B. I don't think that's the case. I think um, God had always had a plan from the beginning of time. You'll see some that are more Arminian, that don't believe in election and predestination or antinomian or both. And again, that's not where I'm at. So it is to say, understand that just because you might identify more, you might be more on a discontinuity side of this, which is where I'm at, there's still a question of what do you mean by that? And I'm going to try to, I think, define the things that are the essential things for uh, what it means to affirm this kind of discontinuity. So that's the goal this morning, to look at those two systems. But first, I want to ask the question, which you might be asking, what does this have to do with Matthew 24, Right? What does it have to do with my life today? What does it have to do with the masters being on when I get home from church, right? Well, I think it is necessary that you have a grasp for, is there, because that's part of the question here, is there a future for the nation Israel? Okay, because if you answer yes or you answer no, it's gonna affect the way you view Matthew 24, it's gonna affect the way you view the promises of restoration. It's gonna affect the way you view revelation. The second thing I think that relates here is what is the future for the church? And if they're the same, it's gonna lead you down a different path than if they're distinct. Because if you might if you understand what I do, you're gonna have a category for distinct roles for God's people. He works through the nation Israel in the Old Testament. I don't think there's any debate on that. He's working through the church now. And then if you say, well, the church is raptured and the focus, which we kind of in Matthew 24, 25, the all of course goes back to Israel, you're gonna go, well, that, I have a category for that because I haven't blurred those two things. And of course, all this comes down to, which we're not gonna dive as deep into because we just don't have the time, is that's all gotta get rooted in what does the scriptures say? So to answer the question, we're gonna at least uh, look at two of the issues and we're gonna talk about hermeneutics and the two kind of major theological systems. There's some modifications within both of them, um, but the overarching goal, if I can get this uh, accomplished, is to look at a comprehensive view of the storyline of the Bible concerning Israel and the church. So I think that becomes an important part of how you understand the Olivet Discourse, right? Is Jesus, who is he talking to? Which generation, what is the inference? Um, Clearly there's things, no matter which side of the fence you're on, that are not yet, things that have not happened that are prophesied in Matthew 24 and 25. And you have to have some explanation. But if you're on the side that Israel is, the same or that the church replaces or fulfills Israel, if you're on that side, you're going to be far less concerned. You're not going to be concerned about the conversations we're having um, when it comes to the end times because you're just kind of going to go, the promises of Israel are fulfilled in the church. That all comes though from this understanding of hermeneutics. And by hermeneutics, I simply mean the art and science of interpreting your Bible, how you approach your Bible. And so when we look at these broader kind of systems, I'm going to boil it down. And again, understand this is not as comprehensive as it could, but hopefully this is helpful. And you can hang your hats on two things, and we'll kind of express those a little bit in our understanding. But if you look at the key hermeneutical beliefs, the way they're going to look at scripture from covenant theology, is number one, there is this idea of a grammatical circle, which I would agree with, but there is this third category typically. Now, the apostolic hermeneutic, um, New Testament priority of the Old Testament, there's different terms. This is the helpful one to me because this is where you're going to go along and have the exact same conversation with somebody. The text means this. This is what the passage says. And then they're going to do some shift at the end and talk about, well, the theology, they overlay and point to uh, a different interpretation than you would get. Or maybe you say, well, I don't see that in the text. Well, they're going to say that's because that's a That's grammatical, historical, and theological. So I think that's helpful as far as a defining term. It's a term that they would use. And then secondly, you're going to see this broad typological interpretation. So firstly, on that grammatical, historical, theological, it's like big enough enough words for you. All we're talking is that when you look at your scripture, that you say this is grammar, there are nouns, there are verbs, right? And... We understand it in its language the way it would be. So that is to say if it's poetic, figurative language, we take it that way. When Jesus says, this is a parable, we don't go, well, that's history, right? Because he let us know. Or if he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, oh, we have grammar that tells us, oh, this is, this is actually symbolic, Right? He's not talking about the kingdom of heaven, that there's fields and pearls and the kingdom of heaven is, is, is the, this, this pearl or anything like that. He's talking in figurative language, but we understand the grammar lets us know when that happens. And also we understand that each of these things happen in its own context. That is, if you grew up in Nebraska like me, you have to do a little bit of work to understand the first century in that kind of Greek, Roman, Jewish mind. So when they look at that term, The big thing within that theologically is to say the New Testament has priority over the old. So if it's unclear in the old, they're gonna look at the New Testament and say, well, the New Testament seems to say, which again, I would agree in many ways that that Jesus fulfills, right, all these things, but I'm not gonna agree that he is a fulfillment of the nation Israel and that all the spiritual promises find their way in him. At least those promises that I think are still tied to um, something that is promised, that is physical. If you look at Galatians three, so you can turn there. Galatians three twenty four just is a good example of this. Of and even maybe this is a bit of a, a critique because I'll talk a little bit of that theological typological as the second point. But Galatians three twenty four to twenty nine is a good example. This would be uh, verse 28 in particular is going to be one that people are going to go to and talk a lot about to say the church has replaced Israel. Because if you're going to say that the church is the new Israel or the church has always been Israel in the fulfillment or just kind of an extension, the way they might talk, if you're going to say that, you're going to have to go, where does the New Testament just do that, right? Is is the church something new in Acts 2 or is it an extension? And and that's my challenge with it. I don't see it. Um, I don't see it in the book of Acts. You see Jews and Gentiles, even in Galatians here, I think you keep it very distinct the whole way through. Even to the end, what I view Galatians 6 and the Israel of God is that, again, there's still a distinction. Um, and that said, that distinction is not one that merits anything before God. It doesn't earn them a special favor as Jew because of their, their, their Jewishness. But if you look at Galatians 3.24, He's kind of moving in his argument here, but he says, therefore, the law has become our tutor unto Christ so that we may be justified by the faith. There is a sense in which Israel is the steward, right? They steward God's law. But now, so again, this is where this is distinctive. The faith has come. So we know something has happened in the new covenant. In other words, that is distinctive from the old. And we are no longer under the tutor, particularly in this case, the relationship to the law. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So an audience here, right? Jews, Greeks. And he's going to say, for all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed heirs according to promise. And so... You look at this and you go, well, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, right? There's no longer, like in Israel, you had to convert to Judaism. And they look and they say, this flattens it all out. Well, in the sense of you're only saved one way, it's through faith alone, by grace alone. I think that's true. But I also don't think in a book that keeps those distinctions separate that he's saying there's no distinction. There's no distinction in salvation. And the same would go uh, the fact that there's no male or female to pick on that one. I don't think anyone reads this and says, well, there's no longer male and females, right? No, there's, I'm looking out and I can, there's, there's males and there are females. His point is to say, when you come to Christ, there's no advantage for being a Jew, there's no advantage to being a Greek, Uh, no advantage to being a male, there's no advantage to being a female, no advantage to being a slave, no advantage to being a free man. There's only one way that you come to salvation through Christ, and it's through this faith that has come. And so I think that's an example of where there's a quickness to go and say, theologically, we can combine those two, and I, I just don't, I don't see it in this passage, and I don't see it in others. Another thing that happens on the kind of the way that interpretation happens, in Matthew 24 is going to be a great example. Uh, you don't have to turn there. We're just going to talk broadly about it. Of this number two, broad typological interpretation. And that is to say that in the Old Testament, uh, Israel serves as kind of a shadow um, of what the real substance is. And so I affirm that I believe there are types in the scriptures and there's some clear ones, I think. I think you look at Romans 5. I think Adam was a type. Um, uh, you look at Hebrews 7 through 10, and you kind of look at the whole Mosaic covenant and elements pointed to Christ. But I, but I think in both those cases, Paul, and the writer of Hebrews, if it's not Paul, is making it clear these were types, right? You look at uh, in First Peter, and you look at Noah, and you understand how he is a type. But I don't think you want to then go to places where the passage has not made it clear that it is a type. For example, if you went to the beginning, you talked about creation, Genesis 1 through 3. I don't think when you look and you see, oh, this seems to be an historical account. It doesn't tell us everything about how the world was made, but it does give us an historical account. And so, for example, when it says days and there's morning and there's night, I go, I don't have any evidence to say that I, I wouldn't believe that God created the world in six days. And there's a danger that they kind of back to typology, right? And they're going to say, well, that just is a, that that's, is a type for this. That's a type for that. And I go, well, at what point can you make anything a type, right? And I would just suggest to you, I think, the grammatical historical um, and, and the passage has enough to define what he's trying to say. And I don't want to go outside of that kind of intended Meaning. Another example, like I said, Matthew 23 and 24. Uh, One approach to Matthew 24 is to say, I don't, in essence, and this isn't to be, um, these things are hard to understand, so I don't want to say this without some level of humility, but it is to say, they're going to look at Matthew 24 and they're going to say, it's too hard to understand. I don't really know what's going on, um, and I think this is just kind of a type. And so I I get to that and I go, okay, in what way? And it's because you see something that's going on that's going to be really bad tribulation, right? We've kind of seen the beginning of that, wars, famines, rumors of wars, Um, and then you're gonna have the abomination of desolation. There's gonna be antichrist, something really bad's gonna happen, and it just kind of stands in place of, like in a shadowy way, and maybe even that would be in their case, the destruction of Jerusalem in 8070. That's a shadowy thing that's going to be even worse at some point when Christ returns. My Challenge with that is when I look at Matthew 24, particularly uh, 23 and 24, you look at all the woes to the scribes and the Pharisees in 23 and all of the judgment that's pronounced on them, and you can see it more explicit in Luke, and you go, oh, right? The judgment's literal. I mean, in other words, it's going to happen, and in fact, it does happen, and the armies surround Jerusalem, and the temple is destroyed. When you look at Matthew 24, he doesn't seem to indicate anywhere in the grammar, as it were, the way you read it, that these are meant to be read as symbolic. In fact, if you go over to 2432, what does he say? He says, Now learn, we're going to get there in a few weeks, but the parable from the fig tree. Or in 25, verse 1, he says, Then the kingdom of heaven may be compared to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. He tells you, this is a parable, i.e., this is a story to teach you a lesson. Um, He's saying the kingdom of heaven, verse 25, is like something. There, again, is is indications this is meant to be figurative. And that's what's missing for me in the beginning part of Matthew 24. I go, there's no no markers in the text that would make me think this is meant to be just typological. And so in that way, I, I keep my typological seatbelt on and I don't just want to go, anything's a type. I want to make sure if it is something figurative that the text is letting me know. And very oftentimes, the text does. You look at the, I've heard a sermon on the, the parable of the soils. And you go back to like Matthew 10, and, and, and I've heard some crazy stuff. And you kind of look and you go, if you just go a little bit further, like another page, Jesus tells you what the soils are. And they come up, with, and you're kind of going, man, you just should have read just a little bit further and, and tr- stop trying to figure it out because Jesus tells you exactly What it is, And so um, those are two key beliefs, though, that are gonna get you to a place where um, it's gonna be easier to have certain things that you may go, well, it's not there, but theologically, it's gonna move me in a direction of spiritualization. I think that's a fair characterization um, of kind of the key hermeneutical interpretation things that are gonna do. In contrast, and this is where we find, where I find myself and where the, the church finds itself, is more on the side of seeing more discontinuity, that, that the church is something that happens in Acts chapter two that's not present in the Old, Age, uh, Old Testament, that is, is a mystery revealed. And so with that, number one, is you're leaving out that third category. You're saying that the, the grammar and our understanding of culture and that kind of commentary is enough for us to understand rightly the passage that is before us. And then that second part, because we've already kind of talked grammatical circle, is this idea, not New Testament priority, but passage priority. And so you look at the gospels and we've been in Matthew and you kind of go with Jesus. And those of you who've been here, if you can think back to Matthew with me, does Jesus have, does he seem to take a plain reading of the scriptures? Does he seem to take a plain reading of there was an Adam? Does he seem to take that there's a plain reading that, There is a Moses. He was a real person who gave laws. And even more than that, you start to see the fulfillments of prophecies throughout Matthew. And they find their fulfillment in a real person, Jesus the Messiah, in a real place, first century uh, Israel, and that kind of real uh, history. And so I look at that and I go, let me think through now, Matthew 24, I understand. I think, and again, most people do that it has some implication for the future because he's talking about the last days, the end of the age and all those things. You look at the book of Revelation and I look and I say, well, the same hermeneutic that they understood, these Old Testament prophecies to lead to a savior. I mean, we look at the Magi in Matthew and they go, we know where he's gonna be born, right? It says so because they can read the scripture. I think the same is true for us. And I think there's enough within that passage to have a right understanding. Now that said, greater context is really helpful. And so we don't have all the context, which is why I'm not gonna be able to set you a date or do any of those things. But I do think that it's not something that the Holy Spirit or in the New Testament has to pour in new information um, as far as those fulfillments and those prophecies. I just think you look at the passage, there's enough there that there is an explanation and there is a level of which too, when you look at some of the prophecies, sometimes they look at them as an example. Go over to Matthew chapter two, 2.15. We were here, I suppose it's been a while back now, when you hit all of these fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. And we talked about this then, but not, all prophecy is Armageddon, right? Uh, not all of it's used the same way. Not all of it is actually as specific as you might think. Some of it is very specific. And I think uh, part of that intent is God gets glory for being so specific. But sometimes they use the passages in the way we think of fulfill. We think of something um, foretold and fulfilling. But oftentimes, like in verse 15, he's using it in a different way. That there's, there's some level of significance being applied to the Savior, And so especially when you understand the author is Matthew and the audience is Jewish and he's showing that this is the true son of David. And you look at Matthew 3.15 and the story of Joseph taking Jesus and going to Egypt. And then he says and quotes uh, Hosea 11. This is Matthew quoting Hosea 11, verse one. says, he remained there until the death of Herod in order that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled saying, quote, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, if you flip back to Hosea 10, uh, and you could flip back to uh, the context there of Hosea 10 and 11, it's very clear he's talking about Israel, right? Well, in what way can he say this applies to Jesus? And that's the kind of thing that I go, well, just like we would talk application, or we would talk This is the meaning of a text and this is the significant. In the same way, I think he's drawing on that to say in a way that I don't think is adding to Hosea at all. He's just saying, look, Jesus is being identified and I'm okay with this as the true Israel. But that's not the same thing as saying the church replaces Israel. So that's just one example of understanding those things. But again, New Testament, the way the New Testament uses the Old Testament if you've given that some thought um, 10 years in, you know, I, I'm still learning and growing. That's a huge area of trying to understand um, how the scripture uses those things. Because some of it, again, there's, there's a couple passages particularly that are very, very kind of difficult and I don't want to act as if they are not. But depending on the hermeneutic you take and your willingness to kind of go outside of the passage priority, it's going to be, I think, easier to then look at the storyline differently So that storyline, though, in its broadest strokes, is this. You think of the Bible storyline, you have creation. God created the heavens, the earth. He creates all the animals and the plant life. He creates Adam and he creates Eve. And we understand there is a part in which he says this is good. And it doesn't, in our sense of reading, right, two chapters, it doesn't last that long. Because you get to Genesis 3. And you have Eve and Adam eating of the fruit of the tree. So you see the other big impact, next event being fall. Uh, Some people add, some people don't add the the third one, but this idea of promise. And very early on in Genesis 3, verse 15, uh, there is a promise. There's curses, right? Adam's going to have to toil the ground fight the weeds and the thorns and sweat it on his brow, and, and Eve's going to have difficulty and pain and childbearing. Um, but there's also a promise that one is going to come, a seed is going to come that will crush the serpent's head, that will crush Satan's head. And so from that point on, there is a movement in the whole storyline that is hopeful, right? Looking for the promised one who will come. In fact, even if it's interesting, if you look at uh, Noah in uh, Genesis 8, uh, they... they uh, if I remember right, I think it's Lemek is his father. But, and he names Noah for that very thing that he wants. He thinks Noah might be the, the savior who will take away that curse. So it's really, really interesting. But there, there's this hopeful expectation of this promise that, that gets built out. And then we know the promise, Matthew, where we've been, is fulfilled in Christ. Christ's first coming. And then we're still looking for his return and full restoration And so within that storyline, there is something going on that is bigger than just even the church and just bigger than even individuals of all creation, even the animal kingdom, being restored. And so when you start looking at, which we will, the biblical covenants and then the theological covenants of covenant theology, I want to look at them in a way that you can have some helpful Categories and you can focus in on those things because one of the things you're going to notice is that covenant theology is going to be really strong on two and uh, two and three, um, uh, two three four really Christ coming, sin, salvation, the sovereignty of God. That is, you look at covenant theology and you read them and they're really really helpful. Some of my favorite, you know, I, I read a lot of the Puritans um, and it's very helpful. But there is a focus on individual salvation, on God's sovereignty, on justification, and Christ and his work on the cross, which, again, is, is good. Um, and I'm not saying that there, there's still a lot of good things within those systems and people that would ascribe to that system. But there's a focus there that I think then creates, on the flip side, a weakness on creation and a weakness on restoration. I'm not saying that they don't have people. Even there's there's 68 creationists that are Reformed Covenantalists. Um, there are even some, although it's a rarity, that would believe in a future for for Israel, uh, number five, or that restoration. But most are going to say, you know, we we don't really know much about Genesis. We don't really know much about the end. And, and that's just not what they write on within that kind of broad system. It's, it's more focused on sin and salvation and the sovereignty of God. Whereas I do believe in uh, my kind of sphere of the world, the dispensationalist is a little stronger on uh, the promise, on, on the covenants and on the restoration, which is why there's usually a higher interest in uh, future things because they have, a, they have a grid for it. But I think we have to understand Two major things at once, as I said earlier, you need to walk and chew gum. And it's that God has a plan for your salvation for you as a person. And then there's also something going on that is broader, that is cosmic with the earth, the nations, Israel, church. You have terms in the Old Testament, like the day of the Lord that become very important and we have not seen them fulfilled. What is that? We have to make choices. Even the kingdom, when you get into Matthew. And what application is... The Sermon on the Mount to us today, is that for kingdom times and living or is there an implication or a significance for us today? These are all questions that you, you'll start to entertain as you kind of walk through this. So I'm gonna give you a couple definitions. And if you yell at me afterwards, I will, I'm okay with it. Like you wanna write it all down. In fact, ask me for this PowerPoint. Um, and also full disclosure, half of this PowerPoint, I, I, uh, uh, it's on loan from a friend. I brought his definitions because it was really, I thought what he did was good and helpful. Um, So if you don't get it all, please just let me know and we will, I'll I'll send it to you and you'll have it all there. Uh, But as a definition, this is what I want to kind of give a category. Uh, Covenant theology, when I say that, beyond the hermeneutics, what I'm talking about is the reform position that sees history through the lens of covenant, specifically the unfolding expansion of God's covenant of grace. Covenant theology holds that salvation is best understood through continuity. So back to that language of that nothing changes, uh, just again, an expansion. Thus, the new covenant is essential, an expansion of the Abrahamic covenant and the church is an expansion, continuation of Israel. So you look at the formation really of this, the Westminster Confessions. Um, and when I talk, of kind of dates in this. What I mean is when it's really formed. And so just like I think within uh, certain doctrines like uh, premillennialism or even uh, a rapture, you can find some of that discussion from church fathers, um, but you can kind of find anything. But when it really gets systematized, as far as covenant theology goes, is this kind of 1600, 17th century Um, who's going to affirm it? You're going to find it mostly in uh, confessional churches, Presbyterians, and by far there are Reformed Baptist churches that would be that, usually Westminster Confession or the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Um, And then as far as history goes, seminaries go, Puritans, Reformed Theological Seminary, Westminster are kind of your your big ones out there. And as far as people, you might know um, and and respect, and I've learned a lot from each one of them, Uh, R.C. Sproul, Sinclair Ferguson, Legan Duncan, kind of give you an example of kind of what represents that. In a nutshell, you look at the covenantal theology, and it's these three major, not necessarily, and I don't mean this, they're, they're not, they wouldn't necessarily love that if I said it this way, but I think it's fair, uh, three theological covenants. Okay, they're they're not. You're not going to find a passage that that says this explicitly. Um, They're going to be inferences from the passage, and so it's these three theological covenants of which they view the world uh, and the way God's plan as it unfolds. So, three covenants, uh, one people. And the first one is that covenant of redemption. And we don't have enough time to to walk through each one of these, but understanding that pre-creation that God, the father and God, the son, some people add the Holy spirit in there had an agreement and not just any agreement, right? A covenant. And I don't even have so much of an issue saying, uh, you look at John 17, you see the interconnecting again, as far as what we can understand of the inner workings of the Trinity, do they need to covenant with one another? That's another question. Um, But understanding that there seems to be an agreement between the father and the son, like he's gonna go redeem the people for uh, his name's sake. But I, I don't like to use the word covenant when the Bible is very specific in the way that it uses it. So that'd be one critique of this. But they would say that is a covenant that happened before time. That kind of is, if you think about the overarching side, it kind of oversees the whole thing from beginning to end. And within that, there's these two other ones, covenant of works, uh, which they would say is activated pre-fall in the garden, and is ongoing. So everyone apart from grace is still under that, which is to say, and um, it's simplistic form that uh, that you need to uh, you fell out of relationship with God the Father. Adam did because he sinned, and again we're okay with that. But but it's a matter of what builds that relationship in, in those things. And they would say, well, there's a there's kind of a, a system here that. Jesus has to merit salvation the, the merit that Adam didn't merit. And that's kind of what they understand as a covenant of works. And then that covenant of grace, post-fall, is everything pretty much from Genesis 3 on, really. And that is to say the way, and I'm a, again, I, I would agree with this, uh, the way that the only way that you and I and, and humanity is going to relate to God is through his grace, I just don't find the biblical evidence strong enough to to kind of give it its own covenant language. Um, And I kind of ask, well, why can't we just say God has always uh, dealt with his people through faith, right? Um, Even in Romans, when it goes back to Abraham and it says that he was saved by, not by works, but by faith, I kind of go, why can't we just, we talk that language and not build this? In fact, I would say if anything, it becomes a distraction from the, the real use of the biblical covenants, and so in this case, the covenants, they're gonna find the fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Israel becomes the church. So it's one to one. And again, some of that doesn't necessarily force itself, but, but for our purposes, that is probably the, the broad general view. It's a helpful diagram, also borrowed, uh, that kind of gives you an idea of way they view things. That is, it's is an expansion. So when they look at the, the, the covenant of grace, It expands from Genesis 3 and the biblical covenants of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, new covenant realities uh, are kind of all, it's one is the way they would view it with just expanding terms as opposed to seeing them as distinctive and unique in their own way. You see when I'm talking about continuity, right, that's just one That continues on. There's a couple of implications we'll talk before we end on why it matters. But to give the other side, uh, to give you guys a contrast here, because again, these are the major ones. There's, Like I said, there's some definitely on the spectrum, there's things within it. But this is to say dispensationalism is an evangelical evangelical theological theological system that sees history as the progress of revelation from creation to consummation with a particular focus on how God works through different eras, economies, ages, or hence the term dispensations, uh, it stresses a distinction between those errors, particularly between the church and Israel. That is, that God works in different ways through different people at different times. And it isn't to say that he doesn't have one plan. Um, it is to say, though, that he has different workings in that one plan with distinct roles, whether it be through national Israel. Uh, really, if you think about it, even before national Israel, right? God, uh, it's very distinctive. His economy, the way he relates to Adam, the way that he relates to um, Abraham, the way he relates to Moses, the way he relates to David through those biblical covenants. And so the progress illustration, it's more of a bigger scope, right? It's, and this is where you get back to that comment so, more concerned with the cosmic side of things and more concerned with the people of God, I would say, than typically covenant theology would be. And some of that's driven from the hermeneutics. Um, historically wise, uh, when you start seeing this really put together, it's not to say you can't, like I said, find these doctrines in church history, but really you start to see some more systems, what you're familiar with. Um, but, you know, 1800s, 19th century fundamentalists, evangelicals, Bible churches, Providence Bible Church. Uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, Moody, uh, the Master Seminary, and then some people you would probably you know, you know, radio guys like Chuck Swindoll, uh, John Feinberg, less of a radio, more of a scholar, uh, John MacArthur, are going to be within that broader camp of, of seeing this distinction and seeing a distinction between the church and Israel. So, different economies, one plan. And so, God has one plan of salvation. Um, I think that's important. Again, this is where there's some differing over history, but I think most uh, dispensationalists today would say, no, we're, we're not gonna say, talk two plans, we're gonna talk one plan um, of salvation, faith in the Messiah, obviously, it was always that way. But he has worked that plan of salvation out differently in different times with different people. And he's currently working, plan out with the church. And so you see that distinction, right? The church is distinct. It begins in Acts 2, There's a future for the nation of Israel. You don't see those lines being blurred. Hence, Israel is not the church. So another helpful graphic here is looking at these biblical covenants. It's one of the things that I do find helpful. And it's kind of one of the interesting things. Uh, Think about the term dispensation. It actually comes, uh, some people, Ephesians 1, you could translate it uh, differently, but you could translate it as as dispensations. Um, Or if you... On the other side, you can look at the Westminster Confessions and it talks about the covenants being administered through different dispensations. So both terms are not bad terms. Um, I will often talk about biblical covenants because God does relate to his people through covenants. Every month when we do communion, we're talking about the new covenant. This is not a bad word. This should be one of your favorite words. Um, But this is the modifier for me that helps, which is I want to stress, I want to, when you hear me, I like to talk in biblical Covenants. Um, and I think oftentimes there's a way that this gets expressed that I think is, is helpful. Um, so, from the beginning, uh, with the Noahic covenant, and you kind of see there Genesis 8, unconditional, uh, literal, global. And again, we're looking and we're trying to appreciate the fact that the promises and covenants of God are multifaceted, right? There's certain things, and there's certain uh, there's things about people certain things about nations, certain people, things about land, certain things that might be nearer and further as far as fulfillment goes. Um, And in Noah's case, you kind of know the rainbow. God's not going to flood the earth again. And so we don't take that as figurative or symbolic, right? We understand that that's a covenant that God made with with Noah and as it were, all people, and it's global. And when is it going to be fulfilled? It says, till the earth is gone. So it's not going to flood again. Fire is a different story, but it's not going to flood again. The Abrahamic covenant, uh, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, you can kind of look at Genesis 12. uh, Again, unconditional. And that's by way of saying it's not something that they had to do anything. In fact, Abraham uh, is put to sleep. So... This is God really, in that sense, making a covenant with himself to be faithful to the people of Israel. And that's one of these issues where you start to see those promises that are fulfilled in land and the restoration of the nation Israel. It's unconditional. It's not just uh, made to anyone, but it's actually made to the people of Israel. And again, it's global. That's a huge part of understanding why I believe there is a future for Israel. Uh, The Mosaic covenant there, uh, and again, some people are gonna debate on this one, whether which way in which it's way in which it's conditional, but it's enough to say it, it's national. We understand that it is fulfilled in Christ. In other words, you're under the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. The New Testament's very clear. Again, this is where you go, well, the New Testament's clear, then there's really no trouble, right? It's the places that are a little more gray. The Davidic covenant becomes important, especially in Matthew, 2 Samuel 7. Um, understanding it again is, is not a, uh, it's not just the Messiah, and it's all fulfilled in Christ and spiritually, and he's reigning in heaven. But you're actually looking at, if we went back to 2 Samuel 7, and we looked at those promises, we'd go, well, this promise has been made to David. It's been made to his descendants, that they'll reign on the, his throne forever. Um, and you start to go, well, there's certain things attached that are not just the Messiah coming, but the Messiah doing things that have not been done yet. And so um, you're still in my mind, expecting those things to happen in the future. I think one of the reasons, um, outside of the fact that I, Revelation 20, there is a millennium, I think what, could, what would happen? Why would it happen? Well, I think those promises get fulfilled in that era. And then of course, the new covenant, which I believe we are under. Um, and the sense though, that this is for Israel and we are grafted in without going in to Romans. But that is just like the Davidic covenant. It's very clear, everlasting covenant with the Lord. Storyline-wise, just putting them together. So national ethnic Israel has a unique role in God's plan, future physical fulfillment coming of the kingdom. So that's going to impact your view of Matthew 24, 25, your view of Revelation versus um, in general covenant theology, Jesus is the true Israel, which again, I don't have an issue with him being the true Israel in the sense of um, he's what they should be. But I, I don't think that washes away all of the distinction, just as I think you can say male and female are equal in Christ. But it doesn't wash away that my wife and I are distinctive um, in that way. I think it's the same kind of deal. But there is an understanding here. Jewish Gentile believers are united to him. A kingdom is a present spiritual reality, whereas we would look for a future kingdom, where again, we see some of those kingdom promises. We see the inaugurated kingdom, but we understand it's coming physical. So why does it matter? You've been waiting for this the whole time. Um, why does it matter? God's people, uh, God's plan, God's promises placed for the church, hermeneutics, life in the church. So think about the nature of God's people. Is, is it simply that there's one people of God with no distinction? Or do you have uh, one people that there is distinction? Israel and the church, the same thing. Is one different? Did one replace the other? Again, you have to make the choice somewhere along the way to read your Bible. And depending on where you make your choice, it's probably going to see how much continuity you see, how much discontinuity that you see. As far as God's plan, is, is God bringing a future kingdom in the earth? Are we still looking forward to that? Or are we living in a spiritual kingdom? That kind of gets back to the millennium. Are we in it now? It'd be a little disappointing, I'll admit. Or is it coming in the future? Uh, is the church the final fulfillment of the kingdom? God's promises, are the Old Testament promise fulfilled in Christ, or is there a future fulfillment for Israel? Clearly, we've been working in Matthew, right? There's a lot of fulfillment in Christ, but is there even more coming? Or is it just kind of all... Um, one theologian talks, you know, vanished in Christ. Place for the church is the church begin with Adam or with Acts. Further on, if you want to ask the question, what distinction, how is the church different? Now, where you don't want to go, I don't think it's very clear that we're all saved the same way, right? And I think we, we want to make sure we understand that. It's by faith even in the Old Testament through the Old Covenant. Uh, hermeneutics, we read the Bible forward or backwards. Again, is there enough information there that you can trust the passage and the priority where the New Testament may enlighten, as it were, but not change that meaning. And then life in the church. You have a very practical one here as far as uh, baptism goes. And uh, when you see a distinction between the signs of the covenant and whether um, people in the covenant are believers or not. Because in the old covenant, you were part of it because you were Jewish. And you had a sign of the covenant. Whereas in the New Testament church, we're saying no, it's, it, you actually need to be a true believer to be part of it, and so we're not going to baptize babies that can't make their own decisions. So that's a kind of example for that. Um, looking at my time here. All right, future for Israel. <laughs> this will be brief, but hopefully this will wrap it for Matthew 24 and our, our kind of understanding of it. Um, Again, I think sometimes you look at the two systems just to clean that up, the focuses are different. So sometimes there's a lot of talking past one another. I'm not saying it's, it's heretical, but I do think it matters. And I do think the hermeneutics are gonna take you different places. Um, but if you believe in a, a future for, for Israel, one of the things that's gonna come up is in Deuteronomy 30, you don't have to go there, but it's this pattern. So you see the blessings and the curses, Deuteronomy 28 and 29. And then in 30, it tells you they're gonna fail, but they're gonna be restored. That's just one example, but you could find it. Pretty much look at the back of any one of your prophets in the Old Testament, and it's bad news, bad news, bad news, and God's going to restore his people. Is that going to happen, or is it not going to happen? I believe it will happen. If you go to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 40, and you look at that kind of section of the new covenant, I do think that that will happen in national Israel. Same thing kind of with Micah 3, 12, 4, 2. And therefore, When you come to Matthew 24, and as we were talking last week, you understand who is Matthew talking about? In this case, who is Jesus talking to? You're in this period where the church is not born yet. And so he's talking, I think, to Israel. I do think the church can learn, just like I think Old Testament saints could learn from prophetic things. But I do think you go, okay, what we're looking at here is Jesus talking about and extending and adding to the prophecy of the Old Testament that you've read. And he seems to assume it's, you should understand, right? You've read the abomination of desolation as we will get there. And you should have understood that. And you know, there's a tribulation coming And In fact, one of the biggest things here is he doesn't correct the disciples and say, whoa, 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 you got it all wrong. There's all that Old Testament stuff fulfilled in me and the church is here now. He doesn't do that. He actually reaffirms all those Old Testament prophets. And the same, if you went to Acts chapter one, I just think this is, uh, is, is helpful. And you get the disciples in a similar way, Acts chapter one, verse six. He says, so when they had come together, they were asking, saying, Lord, is it time? Is this the time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Like, very similar to Matthew 24, right? They wanna know the timing. And what does he say? He says, he, two things, really one by inference, he doesn't correct them. Guys, do you not understand yet? This isn't gonna happen literally anymore. All these promises have been fulfilled spiritually in me. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't say what time it is. He simply says that, verse seven, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And I think he says, because there's a unique role for these who now are gonna be, yes, Jewish, especially the, the 12, sitting on the 12 tribes of uh, Israel, but also saying you're, you're in this sense gonna be part of the church as well. And the church has a mission, but it's, it's distinct. And so the focus moves from a focus on national Israel, right? It's moving in Acts to the focuses on the church. And then there is a future for the church, uh, you look at Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, we understand. We're about something, right? And it's not date-setting, and, and it's not just to talk about the end of the world or anything like that, although I, the Bible says some things about it, it doesn't say everything. But it is to say here in Acts that our job is to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and throughout the end of the world. But there's also passages, and this is where uh, we don't have time to expand it, uh, if you look at first Thessalonians 4:15 through 18, and the kind of we mentioned the Rapture Revelation 3:10 where you haven't at least are prepared to go, oh, well, wh- how do you say, how do you get the church getting raptured before the tribulation? Um, and without doing all our work in Daniel, which I'll leave to Matt for the most part, uh, you end up with looking in First Thessalonians 4.15 talks about um, being uh raptured out of, uh, meeting Christ in the air. I think that seems to be distinctive from the second coming where Jesus plants his foot on the Mount of Olives and splits it in two. Revelation 3 uh, talks about being spared from the hour um, of judgment. And so I, what I want at least you to gather for that is, is you're prepared, like this, this is okay. This isn't crazy talk. We, we went from a focus on Israel And we move to a focus on the church and there's a focus back on Israel that comes in the end. And you go, okay, hopefully you're with me going like, I can see how that happens. And you can ask me, whoa, whoa, explain everything. I don't know everything, but I know some things. But I wanna close with this. And it's just the thought process of why would God do it this way? And so for that, let's go to Romans 11 and conclude our our time. And ask that question, because not only do you have instruction on the Gentiles being grafted in, right? So we're grafted into this, I think one new covenant, one promise. But it does kind of leave you with this question of why. Now it's probably in a long list of why questions. Why create men and women who have the capacity to sin and destroy paradise? You know, God does what God does. I do know in the end though, it's for his glory. And I don't know all the specifics, but I do think Romans eleven twenty five kind of helps us. In Romans 11, just in general, which is to say, uh, Romans eleven twenty five says, I do not want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery. So he's even saying, hey, this is something not revealed in the old, but that so you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And he goes on and he talks about that. And so why would God take the focus off of them, put it on Gentiles, and Jews are part of that as well, but the church, why would he even do that? Well, I don't have a perfect answer, but I think Paul throughout Romans 11 gives you a partial answer. Answer. And that partial answer is that by giving Israel over to a partial hardening, the whole world is going to see in a crystal clear way that just because you are ethnically Jewish, it doesn't mean anything. You're only saved by faith and faith alone. There's no distinctions. That was never the plan. We didn't talk about that early on, but even from the beginning of that plan is it was through Israel that um, the nations would be blessed. And we've seen it out throughout Matthew, right? There is an arrogance. I'm a Pharisee. Uh, I'm a Jew. And this is one global way of saying, God doesn't save based on what we do. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or a barbarian or a Scythian or a male or female or a Jew or a Greek. He saves sovereignly of his own will. So there's nothing that's gonna commend us. You look at and say, well, I'm an American. I'm, I'm maybe, uh, maybe even better. I'm a Baptist, reformed or whatever. Those don't have any power to save. And you know it because God took what the Old Testament calls the apple of his eye, his people, and he let them be hardened. And he can show this key point, right? That God can save and will save all of Israel. But don't you think for a moment he saved them because of something to do with their kind of distinctiveness as Jewish people. He saves them because he wills for his glory and his sovereignty. And I think they won't stand there and go when they're saved, like, wow, look at me, I'm Jewish. No, they won't stand kind of chest puffed out, but they'll look and say, wow, God is merciful and gracious. And they will look not to themselves and the rest of the world won't look to themselves, but they will look to the savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning to study and to just dive deeper into these things. Lord, and uh, we know that you have left us your word and even uh, passages that are harder, Lord, where there's lots of pieces, such as Matthew 24, Matthew 25, and we don't want to necessarily just gloss over them, but yet ask and stop what do we need to learn from them? What are the implications for us in the church and how we should live today? What is the hope that we have? What is Uh, The thing that should even bring us, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, comfort. where we are not afraid of, of trials and tribulations, whether we face them to some degree in this life or not. But we trust in you and know that you have a plan that is even grander and larger than just this life and just even our own salvation. But that is beyond that, that is a a complete restoration of the whole uh, earth, a new heavens and a new earth. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day, and we just want to embrace those things that we feel like that we can know with confidence, and those things that, Lord, we hold even maybe looser and, and don't know is, is is timing and those things. We trust them to you, um, because Lord, ultimately the, the secret things are are yours, and we trust that it's for a purpose that we uh, do not know, and so. We find comfort in your sovereignty and just ask that you'd be honored in our time. We just pray this in your son's name, amen.